Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, as the nation approaches Election Day, politics really is personal. The number one value to Americans today is their family. And families are feeling it. I've not seen this kind of intensity since the Vietnam War. The issue of education has parents fired up. You've made it clear you do not listen to parents. You do not support your teachers and you are not willing to budge. We'll hear from a woman who stepped up to do something about it, suggesting what we really need to do is become familiar with what they're teaching our kids. There's the fill-in sheet asking the students to go over some things in class, and it talks about hormone therapy and gender-affirming surgeries. So that is basically changing the body, taking cross-sex hormones. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with the election. I know many of you have had early voting opportunities in your states for some time now, but Tuesday is election day. George Barna, now at Arizona Christian University, has been looking at what's on the minds of American voters today. He joined Bill Bunkley, my colleague on the opposite corner of the country, Faith Talk, WTBN in Tampa, Florida. You've done another survey. Tell us a little bit about how broad this survey is and then begin to share with us a little bit of what you've been gleaming. Now, I've been telling folks, you know, it's the economy, stupid. But I want to hear from a more learned individual than the just the talk show host. Tell us a little bit about what you guys and gals have found out there. Well, I appreciate Yeah, This was a large nationwide survey we conducted with more than 2,000 adults across the country. And the reason you would have a survey that large is because you want to be able to break it down into smaller segments of that population, whether you want to look at people by age group, by ethnicity and race, uh, by you know income levels, by political ideology segments, all those kind of things. And you want to have enough people in those groups to be able to adequately analyze. So we had a large sample of people uh, randomly drawn from across the country, and we were looking in this particular case at what issues matter to the most, what is going to influence the way that they vote in the November 8th election, whether they vote beforehand, afterwards. And what we found in this study essentially is that it is the economy, stupid. I think it was James Carville back in the Bill Clinton days who <laughs> made that a big expression. And, you know, it's, it's simply another way of saying what had already been a popular idea, which is people vote their pocketbook. People put uh, elected officials into a position to represent us, to take care of us, to protect us, to smooth the way for us. And one of the key ways we know that Americans today are looking for is for those public officials to be taking care of our family, looking out for our kids, looking out for our marriages, looking out for what we do as a family unit. Part of the study, we looked at the values that people say are most important to them. Far and away, the number one value to Americans today is their family. And so when they elect somebody to office, they want that person to put policies and laws into effect 
that are going to be in the best interest of their own family. And as they're looking right now at what's happening with their bank accounts, with the wages that they're earning, they know it's not going very far. So the top three issues pretty much across the board, not with every segment of the population, but with the vast majority of, of the segments of voters we found were inflation, where 61% said that's going to have a lot of influence on who they vote for, food prices and food shortages, 60%, virtually the same number, said that's going to have a lot of influence. And third on the list was oil and gasoline prices and policies, 58%. So all three of these were vying for the top position in virtually every segment across the board. People are saying, you know what, if you don't get the economy right, I'm not interested in you. Now, I'm going to go off the script here, uh, Dr. Barna, and that is uh, you're a pastor. You've been a pastor. You know what being a pastor is all about. You know what an evangelist does. An evangelist hits town, goes to a church, fires them up, doesn't worry about what they think because you're going to be gone next week. Now, I am calling all pastors, either part or all of their sermon this Sunday, to talk about the importance of people voting their biblical values, their biblical principles. We don't have to get in the pulpits and, and name candidates like I do here in my role here at the station. But as you know, Dr. Barna, in the early formulation of our country, it was when people went to church. Their pastors told them who were the right candidates, who were the wrong candidates, the biblical worldview. Then the IRS got involved. Would you speak a word to our pastors of the importance to at least preach that people go vote their values yeah, I mean, we've done research on that, Bill, which I know you're familiar with, in which yes. we've looked at what are Christians across the country, if people go to churches, what do they expect of their church when it comes to elections? And what we found out is that more than two-thirds of believers say they are dying for their pastor to teach them not who to vote for, but how to think biblically about the issues that are important in the election. Amen. And therefore, when they can think biblically about those things, they can make better decisions about which candidates to support, because they'll know what issues to look for, they'll know what questions to ask about those issues, and they'll know what the Bible says about those issues. But we found that the vast majority of Christians say, I refuse to even talk to my neighbors, my co-workers, my friends, even family members about political issues, because I don't know what God thinks. I don't know what to say that the Bible teaches about these things. And so I mute. I remain silent. I lose my influence because I don't have the knowledge. And so I would encourage pastors to recognize you don't have to name names of candidates, but what you do need to do is to prepare your people, equip them to be intelligent, strategic, intentional voters so that in this November 8th election, as they're choosing candidates, they're not doing it on the basis of charisma of the candidate, on the way their face looks on a billboard, on how nice their voice sounds on a radio ad. They're doing it because you've encouraged them. Maybe you've even shown them or trained them how to do homework on these issues, armed with biblical truth in one hand and looking up what the candidates say with the other. I don't know how much you've been tracking the various contests this election cycle, but if you've given politics even a passing glance, you've noticed this. There's a heightened sense of gravity about what's at stake for the country. KT McFarland has been watching closely. 
The former Deputy National Security Advisor was a guest of Kevin McCullough on AM570, The Mission, in New York City. I've never seen this level of intensity for a non-presidential election cycle. What do you make of that, and what do you think has to be done and accomplished in these final days? Yeah, I I would agree with you that I've not seen this kind of intensity um, since the Vietnam War. And in in the Vietnam War, there were, by the time of the midterms after Johnson, Nixon, the time of getting out of Vietnam, and there were nationwide protests and demonstrations. And so there was that kind of energy then. It wasn't as vituperative as it is now, um, and it really only was coalescing on one issue, which was the Vietnam War. Now I think the difference is that between social media and modern communications, it it's allows people in the national conversation to be more in-your-face and vituperative. But it also, this time around, it's not just a sole issue. It's the whole range of issues from education to the economy to inflation to the open borders to law enforcement and criminality and unsafe streets and then the national security issues as well. So it's a much richer um, conversation that we're all having with each other, if you will. There are moms and dads that are going to go vote on what's going on in public education in this cycle that I've never seen. And when you start talking about school districts helping kids to transition you know, and start talking to kids about it at ages five, six, seven, eight years of age. I mean, you you really frighten these parents in ways that are very unhealthy for you as a politician because they are ready to take you down. And I've, I've, if the economy and the crime issue weren't enough, I would say that that third slot of, you know, parental control and parental rights and parental control over their own families and their own kids, that's that's a violation of sovereignty that you don't often see one party like the Democrats are this time be so just bare teethed about they they just they don't care they want to take the kids away and they want to do what they want to do with them yeah and, and that is the bottom line issue isn't it because it affects all generations it's not just parents it's not just grandparents it's not just kids themselves and so I think that the sort of woke let's call it just give it one word that encompasses that whole mishmash of issues you've just mentioned the woke ideology I think we've gotten to peak woke you know yeah. woke is done the, the people have now said, okay, I've seen it. I saw it when we were on lockdown. I saw the junk my kids were being peddled. I'm seeing it every day with the whole trying to groom children, you know, six-year-old children to change their sexual identities. It, it's just way out there. And yeah. the example that, that just sticks in my mind, there's something called the CPAC conference that we have every year. You often yes. come and speak at it. It's the biggest national conference of conservatives, Republicans, and not just politically, but social issues, economic issues, national security issues. And I was at a reception with these Loudoun County moms. Mm. Now, if you'll remember about a year and a half ago, the Loudoun County housewives, moms, were objecting to the woke agenda that their children were being peddled. And so they band together. They started going to local school board meetings. And then the FBI decided, well, these domestic extremist terrorists. I met with those women. They were housewives. They were moms. They cared about whether their kid made a traveling soccer team. They were not prepared to deal with the issues that the teachers were shoving down their throats. And so if that's the average person who's voting now, soccer moms, sometimes they vote, sometimes they don't vote. They're not terribly political. They're really concerned with their kids and their families and what happens in their neighborhood and communities. Those are the people who are energized 
And that, I think, is the biggest difference of all. When I look back at all the election cycles that I've been around, you know, I've, yeah. I've been around since the Nixon administration. Right now, it's gotten into everybody's house, everybody's neighborhood. So you can't just be one of the 40 percent of the American people who say, well, I'm not political. I don't vote. I don't really care about this stuff. Does My vote doesn't count. Now, all of a sudden, you realize your vote does count. Yeah. And and it counts because it counts at the local level. That's why it's so important that these midterms, I think, will be revolutionary in the result that the people of the country are going to tell to official Washington and the, the woke agenda and the teachers unions and all the people who are peddling this junk. Coming up, parents who are challenging public education in a new way. You've made it clear you do not listen to parents. You do not support your teachers and you are not willing to budge. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. In the first part of our program, George Barna highlighted the issues most on the minds of American families. When parents are having a hard time providing the basics for their families, like food and clothing, housing, heat, well, they get anxious very quickly. But the instinct to defend and protect concerns their kids and what they're being exposed to in public schools. So mama bears have started speaking up and speaking out. Hi. When I first stood here a few months ago, I respectfully presented facts and the lack of transparency I felt coming from the district. Quickly, I was mocked and dismissed again and again. You've made it clear you do not listen to parents. You do not support your teachers, and you are not willing to budge. Now I will be speaking to the parents listening. Well, that was a mama bear from a school district just north of Los Angeles in Ventura County, where a number of more traditionally-minded candidates have stepped up to run for school board. Among them, Joelle Mancuso. Joelle was a guest of Scott Furrow on KKLA in Los Angeles. We'll pick up with Joelle's explanation of how she got here. I had been watching the school district for a while and was concerned about what was going on. And then after the COVID shutdowns, everything really got turned on its ear. And I became concerned going to board meetings and, and seeing what was happening, especially with parents coming to board meetings and speaking. And I didn't feel like they were being heard. Yeah. In fact, I'm really glad you played that one clip at the beginning because that parent was very brave and that was very difficult to do and there's lots of conversations before she was able to come forward and talk about it because of course parents are very concerned about backlash for their child what's going to happen the, or maybe the child doesn't want the parent to say anything of embarrassment so that's yeah. that's a big part of it and a lot of reason why a lot of this stuff has been kind of secret and not happening everyone's staying quiet about it until that, now. I think that is a really big part of it. And I want to get into that. Your background is you come from um, a family of public school teachers. Isn't that correct? Yes, I do. My my grandmother, both of my parents. And I grew up in the public school system and loved it. I had yeah. a wonderful schooling myself. And then when I came out to Caneo Valley, 
with my kids to raise my kids. I've been there 25 years. I was really looking forward to going into the school district, and then I discovered some things that didn't match what I wanted for my kids. And so I explored many different things from charter school to homeschooling to public school, a little bit of everything. So you could say that I've, I've had my fingers in, in yeah. everything, so I know the lay of the land. Yeah. What made you decide, I need to get involved here? Your kids are graduated. You could have said, I don't care. I got my kids through. They're, they're okay. What made you decide to get involved? Well, this is going to sound really schmaltzy, but I just feel like I was made for a time like this because mm-hmm. I know education really well. I'm a trustee at a small liberal arts college, and so I know what education can be. I know how it can inspire our next generation, and I have a lot of time to research things. And what I've discovered with our current board anyway, not a lot of research going on with the curriculum and Mm. where it's coming from. If you dig deep enough, which is usually on page two, not on page one, you'll find that a lot of the curriculum coming into Caneo Valley, which is very much suburbia, is coming from places like New York and San Francisco and San Jose. And you're talking about the curriculum that kids are looking at. So when you talk about looking at page one and page two, are you talking about the actual curriculum that's being handed out? Page one says, you know, we're going to talk about English or math or biology or something. But page two tells you what they're really going to talk about. You know what? I'm actually talking about, so a board has to go through the curriculum and decide if it fits their community. Mm, okay. They are their community advocate. That is who is putting them in office. Yeah. Therefore, when you look at a curriculum, you don't just look at the pictures. You need to find out where it's coming from. I see. There's always an agenda with anything we yeah. we listen to, we read, whether it's newspaper, TV, radio, everything has an angle. Mm. And so when you have an audience of impressionable children, you have to look for the angle. And especially in this world, you have to really look at what is the publisher of this packaged material trying to do. And that's not being done. And and Teen Talk is one of those things that was brought into our district that is quite alarming. And actually, the teachers did not favor this curriculum, and the board put it through anyway. That's an interesting thing, too, because I think sometimes the, the teachers in the classrooms get caught up in all of this, but they're not for it, right? They want to be educators. They want to teach, but they are unfortunately sometimes forced. Yes, I don't think this is necessarily a teacher problem. Obviously, we know that there's there's good and bad teachers, but a lot of teachers that were tasked with looking at our comprehensive sex ed did not want this particular one. They said it went too far. And that's what the teen talk is. Yes. My friends, we have to pay attention to this. It's not Democrats and Republicans right and left against each other. This is a serious crisis. But I want everybody listening to realize that this is in every neighborhood. This is in every part of our country. Okay, these things are going on everywhere. Don't say, well, that's going up there with those people. It's happening down the street at your school. Uh, Joelle, you handed me some copies of some materials that are being handed out in schools. And I'm honestly, I've known this. I don't think I've felt, I've had it in my hand before. Okay, so I'm a little bit, it's going to be hard for me to keep it together. Uh, you talked about Teen Talk. So Teen Talk is the curriculum that's the, is it the sex ed curriculum in the Conejo Valley and many other school districts across the country, correct? Right. Comprehensive sex ed was something that had to be taught in California, and there are many different choices. This is one that our board decided to do. It's the most, most radical one, and that's the one that they chose for our little city. So they have many choices put before them. This is the one they voted on 
and chose. Five to zero, actually, after the teachers were apprehensive about it, wanted a more moderate curriculum, and they still decided to choose this one. Moderate? Yeah, all right. Yeah, this is not moderate. So the cover of it um, has a picture of a, a pregnant person who is a man. Not really a man, right? It's transgender right. woman, probably, but a guy looks like a guy. It looks like a guy pretending to be pre- pregnant, right? But it's a woman who has transitioned to a man. She's got a full beard, short hair, but she's very pregnant, eight or nine months here. And this is the only picture in the curriculum of a pregnant person? Yes. So there's no women pregnant. There's some anatomy uh, pictures, but this is the only photograph of a pregnant person. Only the trans person. Okay. When I open this up, and the very next page that I'm looking at here is got information on gender nonconforming and drag queens. And then maybe you could explain what, what I'm even looking at here. There's the fill-in sheet uh, asking the students to go over some things in class, and it talks about hormone therapy and gender-affirming surgeries. So that is basically changing the body, taking cross-sex hormones, uh, puberty blockers so that you don't go through the transition, and then the cross-sex, if you're a a girl wanting to be a boy, you take testosterone, and the opposite if you wanted to be a girl. And um, it's, it's very alarming because... We don't even know what happens to the body when you start taking these hormones. We do That's know right. it makes the kids really great customers for the rest of their lives. Yes. And you have to look at that because a lot of people will ask, well, why would someone do something like this? And you do have to follow the money, and there's lots of money to be made. So then you have to ask yourself, well, why would a parent do this or, or people that obviously care for children? And I think that they've been sold a bill of goods. I think that they've been scared into making these decisions. Is it true that the doctors will say that if you don't do this, you're going to have, would you rather have a a dead daughter or an alive son? Exactly. Talking about uh, transitioning to the other gender. What they're not talking about is the statistics of someone that goes ahead and does the transition, that the suicide rate actually is, I believe it's seven to nine years later, is much greater. Yes. And no one's talking about that. Coming up, how many genders are there? It's not scientific fact. If you look at the science, there are many different things. More on education when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to DaybreakInsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's DaybreakInsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. As we consider the conversation from our last segment on the obscene material that's been foisted on a Southern California school district, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you thought, well, that's Southern California, but that couldn't happen here where I live. Well, I wouldn't be so sure. Bob Bernie looked at what's happening in Ohio. The Biden administration, through executive order, is trying to force every school system in America 
to allow biological males to shower, to change with biological females. It's outrageous. It's immoral. It's evil. And yet the Biden administration is determined to force this. Well, here in Ohio, that uh, insanity has spread to the Ohio State School Board. Here is a statement from the vice president of the State Board of Education. Her name is Martha Manchester. Now, please understand, this woman and others have in their power the education of the children in the state of Ohio. This is Martha Manchester, Vice President, State Board of Education. I looked up, what is biological sex? What is the definition of that? There are so many definitions out there. I I was amazed at all the definitions that there are for biological sex. And how, how can we sit here and say, no, there's just one? Um, and that it's scientific fact. I guess that would be the issue I take with that right in the beginning, is that it's not scientific fact. If you look at the science, there are many different things. And, and why? I don't know. What? What do you mean you don't know? Well, there's all kinds of definitions out there, and it's science. No, it's not science. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Why do we call men's sports men's sports? Why do we call women's sports women's sports? Why, for thousands of years, have we had the men's restroom and the women's restroom. Why? Why, why, why now, all of a sudden? Uh, we don't know what men are. We don't know what women are. We, 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 I, I don't know. <sighs> These people have the education of our children. In their hands. And let me tell you, I, I don't know Martha Manchester, never met her, probably never will. But I cannot imagine that she does not know the difference between a boy and a girl. I think she is a parent. I think. Did she not know whether her children were sons or daughters? Did she not know that? When they were born, did she not look at them and say, oh, it's a girl. Oh, it's a boy. Is there any chance in the world when her children were born in the delivery room, they gave her her baby and she said, I wonder what it is. I don't know what it is. Science doesn't tell us. I wonder if I had a son or a daughter. I wonder if I did. I don't know. 
I can't wait to find out if I had a son or a daughter. I don't know. Biological sex, how can we know? There are so many. This is insanity. This is wokeness and political correctness on steroids. This woman knows the difference between a boy and a girl, but if you state that today, you're a bigot. You're a hate monger. This is not science. This is fear. This is absolute fear. It's not science. Are you kidding me? What is biological sex? I, I, I don't know. Coming up, protecting the pulpit. The call of the pastor fundamentally is to disseminate the word of God, to guard the gospel. Philip DeCourcy, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we look at the state of our nation and what we've discussed here today, I wouldn't be surprised if you're concerned. I guess I'd be surprised if you weren't concerned. But in the language of the Apostle Paul, though we're concerned, we are not like those who have no hope. That hope, of course, is in the gospel. And the best place we can hear the gospel proclaimed is, or ought to be, at the local church with a local body of believers. Now, that's the focus of Pastor Philip DeCourcy, host of Know the Truth. DeCourcy spoke with Scott Furrow on KKLA. The call of the pastor fundamentally is to disseminate the Word of God, to guard the gospel, mm. um, to, to, to scare off the wolves that will enter the church and savage it. And, and so, you know, we, we, pastors have got to return. The balance of their week has to be spent in the study. They've got to come into the pulpit fresh. And, and studied up and on fire by the Spirit to, to, to unleash the Word of God verse by verse. Number two, I think in, in, in over the last decade, two decades, there's been a fixation with evangelism, and we have turned our worship services inside out. And the detriment of that is we're, we're trying to reach the unchurched. We're trying to accommodate the unbeliever. And the disciple of Jesus Christ is sitting there in malnutrition, mm. who hasn't been fed, who hasn't been discipled, who hasn't been taught sound doctrine and theology. Number three, we, we are and always live in a context and a threat of apostasy. And so when we see these stats, it, 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 it saddens us, but it shouldn't surprise us. There are many false believers in the church, have always been. There were those who will be among us who will deny the faith and go out from us. And, and as, the, as the last days increase and dawn, certainly those are days of deception, apostasy, getting ready for the final lie, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet. Number four, Scott, um, a, a failure of parents. 
I'm a parent of three daughters. I, I want to look in the mirror. I, 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 too many parents have outsourced their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're either too busy, they're too weak, they're too ignorant, they're too frightened. I understand all of that. But Ephesians 6, bring up your children in the fear and admonition or instruction of the Lord. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, teach your children when they're sitting down, when they're rising up, when you're in the car, when you're at the dinner table. And there's a failure of parents. I'm, I'm so thankful for a godly mother and father who taught me the Bible, who put good books in my hand, who didn't worry about my moaning and groaning, but trailed me to Sunday morning and Sunday night church until the Word of God did its work in my life. And then number five, uh, forgive me for being so long. That's okay. uh, That's all right. Yeah, an an aggressive culture. I think that's part of it. Probably there's been this soft underbelly, but now the pressure's on. You talk about this a lot. I listen to you. Uh, many afternoons when I'm in the car. This culture has changed. Let's see if we can change it back. But it's changing for the worse. Mm. But but it's the best of times and the worst of times. And I think it costs you now to be a biblical Christian. It costs you to stand up for Protestant, evangelical, historic Christianity theology. And so many people are not wanting to do it. And so the church is being sifted and the church is being purified. And frankly, I'm thankful for that. You know, I, I don't. I don't want to get talk get down to the remnant. Right. But you know what? We've had this kind of Christian culture in America, and 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 I think our numbers have been bloated. And and you know what? I, I'm happy to get down to the true followers, filled by the Spirit. You know, schooled in the Word of God, who are going to be unbending, who won't shift with the changing winds of culture. So those are five things I wrote down to myself. I want to look at them, repent of anything that's in my life that plays into that. But as a pastor, I'm going to commit to the Word of God. I'm going to give my people a feast on a Sunday morning. We're going to train our parents to disciple their children. Our youth ministry at Kindred isn't the playground. We disciple our kids. We get them out on evangelism. And we're going to teach the church to live in a kind of post-Christian culture. Does that make sense? Yeah, that all makes sense. You know, Pastor, uh, all five of those things, the famine of God's Word, it's the the emphasis on evangelism, which I think is just over-discipleship, right, is, is kind right. of that way. The apostasy that is often the result, parents' aggressive culture, all of those things. I think it does come back to your very first one, famine of the God's Word, Uh Right. And I think people are starving for God's Word, and I do think that this is something that pastors need to do better. Why have pastors—I think there's some pastors who maybe aren't interested, you know, they're more into the cultural, topical teachings, but I think that there's a lot of pastors who really want to do this, but are pulled in so many different directions, it's hard to put things together in an effective way. How did we get there? That's a very good insight and a great, great question. Look, on the one hand, there's just the lazy pastor. Yeah. Or there's the, 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 the pastor who, who, who is kind of, you know, uh, um, a false teacher in many ways, who, who, who doesn't want to shape up and square up with First Timothy, Second Timothy. On the other hand, I think you're dead right about pastors who are, who are feeling guilt. But, but they need, they, men need to come around them. Elders need to come around them. They need to delegate. Um, some things. When I came to this church, I've been here 15 years this coming Sunday, I remember an elder on the team, Alan Pott, a friend of mine, who said to me one day, you're spending too much time in the work and not enough time on the work. And and, and you're right, you get drawn in Mm -hmm. to, you know, discipling and counseling and crisis 
and, and you get drawn into deacon work and serving the body in practical ways. And, and just your instinct, right? Yep. God is serve the Lord, serve the Lord. But, but really, you need, I want to challenge pastors to really step back. You are leaders. Um, you, you, that's why Act 6. Hey, we could serve the table, but we're not going to serve the table. We've got to pray and serve the Word of God. And so, you know, uh, pastors need to fight for that. They need to preach that vision to their deacons, their elders. Elders and deacons around those men need to cushion them. They need to provide time for them to study. And they need to say, your number one job is to preach the Word of God. I have have the privilege here, Kenneth. Several of my elders across my ministry have told me, get home and get studying. Mm -hmm. You're getting too involved. And, and, And I love that about this church, and I think that's why we're healthy and we're strong. But and also I think there's a there's a strain of Christianity, there's a strain of American evangelicalism that has demoted theological training. We are asking our pastors to deliver a term paper forty weeks of the year. Right. You know, that takes work, doesn't it? That's exhausting work. And you've got to allow that man time to do it, give him the tools, send him off for training, be an apologist for the gospel, given a reason for the hope that lies within us, and then schooling the church, schooling them up to become little mini scholars themselves. Coming up? We have kind of weakened the preaching of God's Word. We have shaped it to suit cultural and human tastes. And now we're reaping the whirlwind of that. More with Philip DeCourcy in the final segment of our program, so stay with us. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we observe all that's happening in our nation and our culture, I hope you see it for what it is through the eyes of faith. It's a spiritual struggle. The answer for individuals, for families, and for the nation is the gospel. Pastors need boldness and confidence so let's return for a few more minutes with Philip DeCourcy, a guest of Scott Furrow. I think some pastors fear this, but your people in the pews, if they know the Lord, if the Holy Spirit is with them, they are able to hear and understand the doctrines and theologies and the teaching of the Word of God. Don't be afraid to give it to them. And, and, and that's why I'm telling you, I'm coming back to this idea of the church being sifted and purified. We, we, we have so invited the world into the church. Hmm. That, that we have that we have kind of uh, weakened the preaching of God's word. We have shaped it to, sh- to suit cultural and human tastes, and now we're reaping the whirlwind of that. And we're going to have to re- you know recalibrate. We're probably going to have to thin our numbers out and get back to true disciples who are meeting on the Lord's day, who are being deepened in the word, so that they can go out from the church gathering and be salt and light. You know what? Paul Paul says, if an unbeliever comes in, then let him see order, let him see the fear of God, let him taste the work and power of the Holy Spirit. But that's a conditional clause. There's no expectation in the New Testament that Sunday morning and the Lord's Day services is about, you know, droves of unchurched and unbelieving people coming. It's the church gathering, discipling, strengthening, deepening, encountering the living God. It's like the it's like the huddle. And, and, and the, the call, the, you know, the play is being called, and then we break the huddle, and we go and execute that out in the everyday world as parents, employees, students in universities. That's right. And the, the irony of it all is that's where people come to faith, through that. Amen. Pastor, you know, when I, whenever I listen to your program, the theme music on your program is an arrangement of um, Be Thou My Vision. 
and Christians have been singing that throughout ups and downs of the church over all that period of time. The faithful have kept that song around. I think the Holy Spirit likes it and has kept it with us. I think that gives us some hope about the future of the church and all of the different challenges and things that we do need to turn around. Right. I mean, vision's another word, isn't it, for a worldview or a perspective? Right. And it's a great old hymn. It's an old Irish hymn, as you know. And, yes. And, and I, I love the kind of me- the, the melody of it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's David. I have, I, David says, I love this verse. I've always kept the Lord before me. You know, that, that's, he, he looks at things through the prism and the lens of who the Lord is and what the Lord has promised to do. The Bible sets before us a, a wonderful vision. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. Election Day is Tuesday, November 8th. I'd like to encourage you to study and think through the issues and the candidates and vote. If you've enjoyed today's program, take a moment to sign up for our podcast at ChristianOutlook.com. And would you take a moment to tell a friend, thank you. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan, Mike Cook, and James Blind, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! <sighs> and this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. 